Hey everybody, Max here. I just wanted to give you a heads up. There are a couple of audio issues with this episode. Some minor squelching and weird feedback issues that I don't know how to correct yet. They're not very large pops or not very loud either. And they drive after the first hour. Sorry about that. I'll, I'll keep trying to improve on the recording. Anyway, enjoy the show. This was the first one I saw. I don't know why my camera's not on. It's like, oh man, if I have to read one more internal monologue, I'm gonna lose my fucking mind. Now I should point out though, I went to get some wine myself. This series has been a kind of a minor hobby of mine. Okay, this is uh, episode six of Max and Jason Watch a Movie. I'm Max. And I'm Jason. And uh, today we will be watching and discussing Superman 2, directed by Richard Lester from 1980. Okay, so you are the trivia master, the lore master of the Superman Donner films, the 78 to 80 films. Uh, so why don't you lead us off with the production notes? This is you, so? you know, You know more about the production than anyone I know. Uh, that's probably true. Uh, this series has been a kind of a minor hobby of mine. Uh, and actually, I think I probably touched on some of this in the last episode. What ended up happening was the the first Superman film was made, and and it was uh, and it was a big hit. And just a few weeks after that, the plan was that Richard Donner was going to ramp up the production team again, and they were going to complete Superman two, which was seventy to eighty percent complete. It really wasn't going to take long to finish the film. And there are, I, and actually, I didn't know this part. I just learned this. There were conf there are conflicting stories that the Salkinds, I would say to this day, but Alexander Salkind is dead. They claimed that Donner, that they did not fire him, but that he made all kinds of demands about final cut and all this kind of thing. And they just, they just couldn't meet his demand. Donner claims that he got a telegram saying your services will no longer be required. But then what ended up happening was uh, Tom Mankiewicz and a lot of, a lot of other people were very loyal to Richard Donner and they, they refused to come back, including John Williams. John Williams also so uh, I guess he came back and worked with Richard Lester, who was the replacement director, and is who the Salkinds wanted from the beginning. And Williams did not get along with him, so he was out. Yeah, I had, a, I had a question about that, because in the credits of Superman 2... It, it says, music composed and conducted by Ken Thorne, uh, based on material that's right. originally written by John Williams. Now, and of course, and we'll get to this, but listen to the film, it's pretty much the Williams score. So yeah, so they found somebody else to do that. They they basically decided, which is not a money-saving uh, idea, but they basically decided to just reshoot the movie, to basically just scrap what Donner had done, go back to, interestingly enough, the original script written by David and Leslie Newman for Superman 2 that Donner had deleted. So a lot of what we see in this in the theatrical cut of Superman 2 is the original script, original rewrite of Mario Puzo's script. Okay. So actually a lot of the material in the theatrical cut predates Donner. Because David and Leslie Newman came back, they rewrote everything. Uh, Richard Lester came in to direct, but they ran into a problem. They they asked Gene Hackman to come back to reshoot all of his scenes. And he said no, yeah. that he wouldn't come back at all. So they knew that they, and they wanted Gene Hackman in the film, but they knew they had to use a, a lot of Donner's footage that was in the can already. So they came up with a plan to reshoot anything they could and also write and shoot new scenes because I guess that the rule was that 51% of the film had to have been shot by Richard Lester 
yeah, to erase Donner's Donner from the credits. Yeah. Oh, just today, I found a clip of Donner saying that they were contractually obligated to show him the film, and he had to kind of sign off on that. Do you want your name on this at all? And he looked at it and said, nope. So he, he voluntarily you know, wanted nothing to do with it. So the film is attributed to Richard Lester. I do think that the theatrical cut as it exists is about 70% Lester, about 30% Donner. Okay. Um, there are some thing. There are some things that they reshot. I mean, basically, as a general rule of thumb in watching the film, any scene with Gene Hackman is is Donner. Also, the moon the moon scene and the White House scene was shot by Donner. They they decided to go ahead and use that rather than rebuild those sets. But uh, everything else is new. Everything else was shot in 1979. The uh, the film was completed. It was released in late 1980 in most of the world, but early 81 in the United States, which I. I didn't know. To me, the real story of Superman 2 is the backstory, the production story, at least for the theatrical yeah. cut. Reading some trivia, to, right. uh, maybe you'll tell us a little bit more about that. So for the for the people who haven't seen this movie, uh, this is the second film of Richard Donner's two-part idea, right? I mean, the, the idea to have two films began in 77. And it basically carries on the story of Clark slash Superman from where we leave him in the first film. It picks up on the threads of the Kryptonian criminals, Zod, Nan and Ursa. They're the big bads in this movie. They get freed in the movie as a byproduct of Superman stopping a nuclear bomb from going off. And He's a hydrogen bomb. <laughs> that's, right, that's right. That's right. The hydrogen bomb is at, uh, yeah. and there's a lot of bad Parisian accents. Like everybody's speaking English for some reason. <laughs> I don't quite understand that. But Like mine, yeah. Uh, <laughs> right, exactly. Right, I mean, right. Jason's accent, I mean, he would have fit right in on that set. Uh, <laughs> But so he, t Superman takes this bomb up to uh, space. It blows up and it frees the, the other Kryptonians. Also, by the way, movie trivia note, I calculated how fast Superman was moving when he took that bomb to space. And I could do this because I counted the seconds from when he left Earth with the elevator carrying, what was it, Jason? What was he carrying into space? Hydrogen bomb. That's right. It was a and BIM. <laughs> a hydrogen BIM. He was moving at 127,500 kilometers per second. And I could tell that because it took him three seconds to get near the moon. I, I digress. The the characters from uh, the last film, uh, the Kryptonians are the big bads. Gene Hackman's Lex Luthor makes a brief appearance. He's not in it very much. Yet he's top billed. He's very good. He has some great lines in the movie. Well, I think that uh, it was contractually, they were contractually obligated. He was second billing to Marlon Brando okay. in the first film. And of course, they, they got rid of Brando for this film. And we'll get into that about yeah. how, I mean, for years, I never knew that Brando even was supposed to be in this. But so Gene Hackman gets top billing. Christopher Reeve finally is up to number two. Yeah. I think he was like number four in the first movie. But it was a big hit. Uh, critics at the time, many of them thought it was better than the original. You know, it's interesting that you say that. This film, this was one of the early properties that HBO had. So yeah. I've seen this film probably more than I've watched Superman the movie just because it was on HBO a lot when I was a kid and I would watch it a lot and I loved it. I remember thinking, oh, this is a lot more exciting than the first film. We've got a big superhero fight, which yeah. is the first in, I think it's got to be the first in movie history, right? Yes. And for a long time. Yes, it's true. Uh, I mean, really, I mean, if you're talking about a cinematic 
comic book fight between baddies, which the Batman movies didn't really get. First of all, Batman and Robin don't really have power. Yeah. So when you're talking about a a battle like the battle in New York in the Avengers, which now happens in every movie. Yeah. yeah. But all the way up to at least to all the way up to at least 2000 with the first X-Men movie. Mm-hmm. I think that this fight is really the only one that we have. You're right. It was the champ for a long time. It, it, it is no longer. No. I mean, spoilers there, but I mean, yeah. it it, uh, it was a big, big deal. Yeah. And so I've seen this a lot, and I mean, I remember really enjoying it. I'm noticing things now on this watching that I didn't notice as a younger as a younger viewer. But I, I remember thinking, well, this is exciting. You've got like a superhero fight, which is which is more exciting. I mean, super. I don't think Superman really throws too many punches in the first film in the in Superman 1970. No, he, he mostly saves people from calamity. Uh, in this one, he actually has to fight right. active agents of of calamity, people who really want to injure folks. So I, I really dug it as a kid. I, I thought it was pretty cool. Uh, I don't want to get too far ahead of that, but continue on with your production notes and stuff, or whatever you want to talk about. I don't give a shit. Uh, well, yeah. Well, uh, I add this. I might have mentioned this last time. This was the first one I saw. We oh. actually went to see right. this. We never saw the first one in the theater. We went to see this, and I was surprised. Wow, there's a Superman movie. Why didn't we go see the first yeah. one? I was kind of mystified by that. I, I really enjoyed it. And as a kid, I always liked it much, much better. Yeah. And in fact, I'm as a kid, I remember watching Superman the movie because, well, this is the first one. So I guess I have to watch it in yeah. preparation for this masterpiece that really which is one of it was probably one of my favorite movies. As a kid. And, and for years, it was seen as, um, I think I want to say this. Uh, I mean, we all know better now. Uh, and I'm not spoiling anything there, because actually my opinion of this film is actually kind of nuanced. But probably right up until Batman, the first Batman movie came out, we've already reviewed. Superman yeah. 2 probably would have been seen as the best comic film ever made. Now, granted, that's not a large... Well, it, it did really well. It, it, it made over $150 million, So it did well, and it was, like you said, critically well-received. I think Roger Ebert liked it. I, I mean, a lot of other critics liked it. It was so successful that the Salkinds greenlit Superman 3 pretty quickly there, pretty quickly after it had released and done its, done its yeah. business. It's hard to argue with success, I guess. Yeah, but I guess, you know, the, the, there's several things, and probably a theme that we're going to discuss as we kind of, as we kind of dive into the film is that this film... It's hard to hate this film because it benefits so much from the beats that were created by Mario Puzo yeah. in the original script. The fact is, is that the the basic story beats of Puzo's original idea yeah. of starting with Superman's origin and the criminals uh, receiving their, their sentence on Krypton, Krypton's destroyed, Kal-El comes to Earth, has a little mini-adventure with Gene Hackman, is introduced to viewers. Yep. And then in Superman 2, you kind of dive into really what the core, the root of Puzo's story, which is the culmination of a love story yeah. and the culmination of Jor-El and the, the house of Jor-El and the rivalry with General Zod. Yeah. The, the the final product, I think, benefits yeah. from the fact that Puzo's story is really dynamite. You're absolutely right that the film, this film, benefits from the strength of that that vision that Puzo had. So for viewers who don't know, there are two different cuts of this film. One of them is what is now known as the Donner cut, which is the film that Donner kind of intended, where he uses a lot of his old footage, anything he can scrap together to finish what his vision basically would have been. It's, it's like a t- template. Uh, it's not a finished movie, but if you're interested in the story uh, of completing the uh, the Donner vision of the Mario Puzo script, then you definitely want to see the Donner cut. Uh, the theatrical cut is a different beast 
altogether, I think, but it's what everybody has seen, uh, what most people have seen. Right. Who've seen these movies. It's a much different kind of vision. I know I read today that Lester was very much opposed to Donner's kind of grand cinematography. Lester had this system of like doing doing action and with three cameras, a long shot, two close shots, and that was how he did everything. And he also like tried to compress everything to see to feel more like a comic book, I guess, as opposed to a film. Yeah. I want to hold off on talking about Donner Cut a little bit. Okay. Want to focus on this because this is the film yeah. that we're actually doing. Let me talk about the things that I think Richard Lester did right, and that uh, and that the script did right. I actually like the idea of the Paris stuff. I think that what you talked about about the the accents and so forth, absolutely. I I really zeroed in on the performances in this film. Lester was just not as good at getting really dynamic performances from these actors. No. Except for Christopher Reeve. I, I actually feel like that Christopher Reeve, I, I, I don't know when it was. I mean, if there was a question and answer thing, I would ask Richard Donner, you know, when was the moment when Christopher Reeve had this character so much that you didn't even have to direct him anymore? I, I, I don't think his performance suffers at all, but I kind of feel like that uh, Margot Kidder is missing something. She, she's merely acting. She's not Lois Lane yeah. anymore. That that stuck out to me right out of the gate. In the terrorist scene, Margot Kidder delivers lines like, oh my god, there's a hydrogen bomb? What? You notice it right away. Yeah. Oh, it's it's terrible. And, and I'm like, what happened to Margot? I actually think that a lot of that scene is fairly, is well executed. However, there are little moments that just kind of kind of don't work. Well, okay, the, the, the terrorists leave the bomb in the elevator. For some reason, I'm not real clear on as to why and they decide that they're going to kind of do whatever they need to do with the bomb from from you know a long distance away because we've got to keep it in the elevator yeah. or the lift and then the, the the paris police calls the elevator to fall lois is underneath the elevator but now those shots are very good yeah. you know the shots of the elevator going down even as a kid i thought that looked really good and, and i guess i should backtrack a little bit because actually once clark discovers what's going on and then he goes outside into the alley and we get the superman theme and he takes his suit off and he becomes Superman a little too quickly. That's a very exhilarating scene oh, yeah. because the viewer that had seen the first film had to wait an hour before we saw Superman and we get Superman right out of the gate. And that is a really good little moment, not arranged by John Williams this time, but the theme is very effective. Superman flies to Paris just in the nick of time, saves the elevator as it's falling down. And, that, and the shot of Superman flying up to catch the elevator, yeah. I think looks very good. It's pretty good. Uh, maybe that's my childhood mind, but I, uh, for 1980, I think it looks good. I, I thought that the compositing in this film was a lot more uneven than it was in, seven, in, in the 78 film. And I don't know why that is. Some shots to me in this film look very good. The scene where he's going up the elevator shaft to catch her, I don't think it works as well as him going to Paris or the model work of him pushing the, the elevator shaft up the back up when he when he eventually takes the elevator. I thought that looked fine. I think the close-up flight effects are the best things in the movie, special effects-wise. They're the things that hold up the best today because yeah. now, now with computer animation, navigating three-dimensional space looks so much better than it does in this movie. So it doesn't look as good as yeah. anything today. So I tried to be as forgiving as I could be about those effects but some of them just aren't as good as others in the movie i didn't think well i mean i mean that's probably fair i mean i think it doesn't look as good as it did when i was a kid um what i asked myself was okay
okay, is this effect good enough yeah. to, 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 ma to maintain the illusion for me? We've shared some of our criticisms of the, of the Eiffel Tower scene, which is not in the Donner cut. I actually think that the Paris scene, although it has some problems with execution, is one of the better things about Lester's version, uh, or Lester's vision of things. Because, because, it, because it starts the film off with an action scene uh, that's fairly elaborate, probably more elaborate than even anything we saw in the first film. I, I think it, for the most part, it works okay. And the only reason that I would only say okay is because Margot Kidder's performance, some of the unbelievable aspects of what's happening among the, the officials in Paris. But overall, I think that it's, um, it's a strong action opening. I think with the exception of the caveats you've already laid out, I think that's right. I think that the the gag of bringing down the elevator is really well thought out. Though, as I think about it now, why did they decide to blow up the elevator? Like they've got guys looking at the at the. Did they know that the elevator was in the the bomb was in the elevator? Why? Yeah, because the guy with the binoculars. The third one is out of the leaf now. Like yeah. you know, so they're we've been watching them all the time. But then, uh, in fact, one of the guys even says, uh, "Are you sure they haven't had time to prime the bomb?" Yeah. No, no, no. Of course not. No, we, we've been watching them all the time. But of course, they failed because they they actually had had time yeah. to find the bomb because it's going to go off. Did you did you recognize the actor who was the guy who was going to be holding the dead man switch before they lost tr control of the bomb? Maybe the actor is uh, Harry Potter's uncle. Yes. 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 All right. Um, a bit more trim than he. Yeah. <laughs> in later films, but anyway, I just noticed that I thought that was a neat little touch. Uh, not really a touch at the time because he was a fucking nobody, right? Right, time. right, yeah. He just built his terrorist too in the in the credits. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> right. But no, I thought that was an effective scene. It's one of my as a kid when I was watching when I was getting ready to watch this movie. That was the scene that kept coming back to me. I was like, oh, there's a there's a there's a scene at the Eiffel Tower. So from there, we we take Clark and Lois to Niagara Falls, which is which is yes. a strange transition. I thought. Well, I, I guess we should say though that the the elevator explosion, the explosion of the of the bin, uh, destroys, shatters the Phantom Zone, and the yeah. three antagonists are are now free, yeah. and they begin making their way to the moon. I, I guess we can't get too far ahead of ourselves because yeah. my favorite character in both films, uh, Mr. Luthor <laughs> and Otis, have to plan their their jailbreak. You and I have discussed the comedy of the last film, the escape of Luthor and Otis in this film is intended to have a lot of comedic moments in it. How did, how did you think that worked? Well, you know, I, I'm actually, I'm finding that my, uh, I, I've been trying to resist talking about the Donner cut. Yeah. And I'm finding, you no, know, I really can't review this film without uh, without talking about that a little bit. It's actually one of the things that I that I notice about the theatrical cut is that Donner's scenes are all trimmed to such a degree. Let's just give the viewer enough to to demonstrate what's happened. Luther escapes. Boom, done. In the Donner cut, there is actually more material, just like the previous film. I actually like the comedy in the scene. I don't think that it makes a lot of sense the way that it's cut in this film. Because uh, it's basically, they go out there, Luther sends him out to find the ladder, he finds the ladder, Luther gets up, and for some reason, Miss Tessmacher is now helping Luther escape. Yep. And we're not really sure why. They end up not taking Otis with them because uh, he, he begins pulling the, the hot air balloon to the ground. When you watch the full scene as Donner intended it, to me, the comedy is a lot like what it was in the first film. It's the same kind of feel, but a lot of the best lines from those scenes 
are not in the theatrical cut at all. Uh, There's a great little moment when uh, Otis is talking about, they can't even follow that guy on the radar. Every time they try, he just flies away. And Luther says, where? North. Why? And then, and then Otis says, to ski? In the Donner cut, Luther says, Otis, your brain defies any known scientific theory in its infinite capacity to deteriorate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and then he says, uh, "Every man has his weakness. Some, like you, Otis, have more than one." Yeah, and he said, which he, actually, I think that yeah. that line is. He does say that. Yeah, yeah. Donner's material is it, it, it's trimmed up quickly because they just want they just want to get past it and move on. I actually really like that material. Well, I'm sure that it was better. As for the prison sequence, I don't think it works as well in the theatrical cut. So they're sneaking around the prison yard and they're trying to avoid the spotlight and the spotlight passes over them. They are now directly in the line of sight of whoever's operating yeah. the spotlight. <laughs> that's true, yeah. Otis does a uh, bunny ears behind Lex. And and that's kind of funny, but yeah. but I was like, well, it seems like they should have been caught at that moment. Now, there's a, an attempt to explain it by having the guard turning around looking at whatever the other guard is watching on the television screen in there. But at the beginning of that scene where the guard is looking out over the spotlight, maybe it was like, well, I'll get him in a minute because where are they going to go? Okay, that moment is yeah. bad and it's also bad in the Donner cut. In the theatrical cut of this film, that scene is not even worth watching yeah. because all of the the comedy beats are kind of taken out of it and that is one of the one of the sad things about the theatrical cut is that even though he has top billing Gene Hackman's performance is cut to shred very few of his scenes i would say none of them oh, wow. are really allowed to breathe i'm surprised they didn't just try to cut the character out altogether but i guess that he he ended up playing two too big of a factor in terms of giving giving information to the uh, to the villains. Now, did he not come back? He did not. He refused. Every scene in the theatrical cut that has Gene Hackman in it was shot by Richard Donner in 1977. Oh wow! Every single one. They almost should have cut him out because he doesn't he doesn't function that well in the scene in, in the movie. You know what I mean? And if Lester was shooting like over 80 percent of the movie to get his name on lights, I mean, it seems like they could have just said, okay, look, we're gonna have to rework the script to get rid of Hackman, you know, just because he's not coming back and we can't really make the new material work because he doesn't mesh very well with this story the way Lester's telling it. You know what I mean? I don't. I think, I think that's right. Um, because that yeah, well, because they again. They don't want, it's very clear, they don't want Donner's scenes to, to, to kind of breathe. I, I don't remember, you might have mentioned it in the first podcast, but that was a lot of alcohol ago. And could you refresh the audience about why they got rid of Donner? Why the Salkines, who I think are the villains of any piece of film in the 70s that they produced. That, that, that's very true, yeah, absolutely. I, I might have mentioned the, the Salkines were very big on quick productions, that were kept under budget. That was their priority. That's why they liked Richard Lester. They had worked with him on the Musketeer films, which are great. Richard Lester worked very quick, always under budget. Oh, and, and this is something else though that I've learned since the last podcast. Apparently Warner Brothers, when they started seeing the, the dailies from the making of the, of the film, mm -hmm. they upped their investment in, in, the, in the product. And the Salkines began to feel like that they were losing, you know, their skin in the game because it's, it's weird that they were actually threatened that Warner Brothers was suddenly investing more money 
which means that the product was less and less theirs. They, they didn't like that. The production of Superman almost went two years. It was a very long production. Uh, of course, remember, it was the production of Superman 1 and 2. They did not, they did not get along with uh, Donner. Donner did not get along with Pierre Spengler. Pierre Spengler produced the film. Like they, like there, there was genuine uh, animus between, uh, between them. They ended up getting rid of Donner because because they could. Richard Lester had showed up at the very end of the production of Superman, of the first Superman, as an advisor. And he's the one that came up with the idea of taking the, the turn back of time and yep. taking that from the end of the second film and putting it at the end of the first film. And that kind of convinced Lester that he would be willing to do it because they offered him the job first. Okay. They wanted him right out of the gate. And he said, I'm not into comic. I have no interest in doing a comic. Okay. He really didn't see how he could plug into the Superman universe. I'm not happy entirely with what he did. <laughs> because I kind of like, uh, well, just to back it up a bit, a little bit of my reaction to the theatrical cut. I was deeply annoyed with the theatrical cut, almost from the credit. But I thought the credits and the callback to the first film was way too long. Like they kept showing us footage from the first film. A little bit of that goes a long way and I would have liked a little bit of it. Uh, also, I'm, I'm kind of like you are with this. I'm a little bit of a prisoner to what I know. During all of the scenes where they're, they're calling back to the first film to kind of rem to remind their viewers of what, what happened in the last film, they're very unsubtly cutting around Marlon Brando. Not only that, the scenes of the hand putting the green crystal down, yep. they reshot that. Okay, so it's not even Brando. It wasn't even Brando. They had to, because Brando wanted uh, a percentage of the gross, which was, I guess, in, in his contract. Yeah. They were so eager not to pay him wow. that they, they wanted to ensure that there was nothing of Brando that was in the film. Wow. Well, and as a viewer, I want to see some of the Brando scenes. I like, I like uh, Lara Zorrell. I think she's, I think she's yeah. a fine character, and I, I would not have wanted to see less of her. But it is a disservice to the viewer, I think, to cut Brando out of those scenes because he's such a, he has so many crucial scenes in the first film where they're sending the baby off. Um, and I thought, I'm offended by that as a viewer. But that bothered me. But then the scene of all this, this callback stuff, it's just really long. Let's get a move on. The little bit where they kind of have this almost like pre-action scene before the major credits start to roll where Non attacks the, the guy. Was any of that Donner footage or was that all reshot by Lester? That was reshot shoots yeah. so and that scene makes no makes no goddamn sense at all no no in the first film we see the aftermath of zod's insurrection he's caught they do a trial jor-el lays out the case against him and the council's like yeah you guys got to go to the phantom zone in this film they return to krypton but in a way that eliminates jor-el from the scene and there's a weird pre-credits action scene where one of Zod's guys uh, attacks somebody, and then almost like the Three Stooges, they're caught immediately. It's a terrible scene. And one of the things that this deprives us of is the tension between Jor-El and Zod. A lot of Zod's fixation on Kal-El is basically because he's made this promise to Jor-El. And so when, in this film, Zod goes spinning off into space, I'll find your heirs, Jor-El. This makes no sense because we don't have Jor-El in the scene. They didn't do any callback to that. It's possible that people who aren't fans of the, of the comic book are going to be like, I wonder what that guy's on about, you know? What's he upset about? I mean, other than he's in a, he's in a piece of glass now. Of all the things about the film that are a problem, that's actually the biggest one. Not just the absence of Marlon Brando, Mm -hmm. But the, the absence of the of the through line with Jor-El. And now I know now I know that Jor-El is mentioned 
and, and those things are good. But the fact of the matter is, is that is that there was kind of this consistent arc that I think was originally intended to be in there. That you know the battle between Jor-El and his enemies finally comes to some kind of climax all these years later on another planet, and the Lester cut just drops all of that dramatic potential. Um, and, and then to say nothing, you know, the scene that you were referring to where they're caught, that is, that is a horrible scene. As, as a kid, I liked it. But basically, their act of insurrection was taking a red crystal and snapping it in two. Now, see, in our imagination, or in my imagination in the first film, this act of insurrection, I kind of imagine that General, he's a military guy, General Zod, yeah. led a very serious coup. Now, we don't have to see that. All we have to do is hear about it, and our imaginations can do the rest. That he went, they go in, they break the crystal. They're immediately captured and immediately tried. Like, yeah, you know, the, the 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 circles come down. You three criminals, and and it's like, oh, I guess that was quick. Yeah, and yeah. and um, and and I, and I think that the first film kind of gives the idea that the battle against Zod was a little bit more drawn out than that because oh, yeah. the emotions are really flaring and they're and they're very high. The theatrical cut just empties that scene of all of that. And uh, I mean, if this is how it all went down, what should have occurred in Marlon Brando? cases, uh, these are matters of undeniable fact, but due to the incompetency of these people, that all they did was break a, a crystal and got caught immediately, we probably should give them a light sentence. <laughs> you know, I mean, exactly. it, it just... Right? I mean, yeah, yeah. everything about that scene that was powerful in the first film and is really required to be powerful in this film is, is just not there. Look, I we said at the very beginning that uh, that the beats of Puzo's story are very strong yeah. and they do help to hold the narrative of this film up. But yeah. there are so many little moments that this film really needs to do well that it doesn't. And, that's, and that is one of them. I really enjoyed our watching of 78 film in part because of just the depth of what I think was the Puzo story. Donner made it leaner. By all accounts, it was a sprawling Godfather-like script. And so he compressed it, but still that script required two films to complete. Lester's film seems to be not only a really big watering down, but kind of a rejection of a lot of depth of the, of the, of the Puzo script. I think so. I'm probably, in certain places, I'm more friendly to it than you are. Not the same yeah. we just talked about. What, what, what stuck out to me this time was the acting is just far less interesting mm-hmm. than it, than than in the first film. So, which I guess brings us to finally, finally to the uh, Niagara Falls scene, and we've already referred a little bit to the the scene where he saves the kid. What do you think of the Niagara Falls stuff from beginning to end? I don't mind the ideas of it. Um, I think the acting in certain segments really drags down the the scene in the movie. For those who haven't seen it, Clark and Lois are sent to Niagara Falls to report on the newlywed phenomena that was going on at Niagara Falls. People would get married, I guess, in the late 70s, early 80s, and go watch Niagara Falls uh, uh, to, to maybe distract them from themselves from the fact that they're stuck with this person for the rest of their lives. I don't know what the appeal of going <laughs> to Niagara Falls is on your, your wedding day, but maybe there's something to it. So Clark and Lois have to report on this. They're pretending to be newlyweds. Lois is very upset about that because Lois is he's a reporter who's more obsessed with winning the Pulitzer Prize than any reporter I've seen in a film ever. Well, I'm not going to get a Pulitzer Prize writing for this. And then Clark, Clark very, very politely reminds her, Clark does everything politely. Well, I don't know, Lois. Uh, uh, you know, this is, uh, these people are getting their start in life and they're getting scammed, you know. However, this is an e-rug. Yeah. 
there's a lot of there's a lot of bits in like that's a great that's a great little exchange at least on Christopher Reeve's part Lois is weak in this movie for reasons I don't quite get I, I have I I have thoughts on that well, uh, let me go ahead. Go ahead. I, I loved the bellboy that welcomed them to to the room. He is he is at he is at once you know very interested in telling them everything, and at the same time he clearly hates everyone at Niagara Falls. He hates his job. He doesn't care a bit about their good times. He's just telling them everything. He wants to get his tip, but he's he's smarmy. He's I mean he is everything that I want that bellboy to be because the. I mean, the room that he takes them to is hideous and horrendous. The bellboy realizes that this is the dumbest thing that people could possibly do after their wedding. And I love that he, I get the sense that this guy dropped out of high school. He was very smart, but not very ambitious. And he, he ends up in this job. He's smarter than everybody who works there. And he has utter contempt for everyone who stays at the hotel. And I, I, I thought this actor did a superb job of... Uh, of conveying that, and I love that. I love that bellboy. Well, well, that's a that's a Lester scene, that, and that's very much a Lester touch. You know that kind of comedy. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's an effective scene. Uh, that, the, well, I, yeah. that guy's effective in that scene. But yeah, I, I I thought those scenes worked pretty well. You know, that's how I feel too. I actually the only moment that I. I think Margot Kidder's pretty good at is when she she's kind of sitting on the rail and she's got her her chin you know resting on her and and, and that's when she tells Clark that she feels like she knows who he is yeah. and um, and I love Christopher Reeve when he's chasing her oh God yeah. what's up with the rocks you know well in the scene in this key scene yeah. Lois is pretty sure that she's figured out who Clark is he's just saved a boy Superman's just saved a boy from falling over Niagara Falls she's like oh my God Clark uh, Superman's here and Clark is nowhere. Around. And she's just seen Clark without his glasses yeah. on. So the wheels are turning slowly for a Pulitzer Prize winning writer, investigative journalist, but they're turning. In the scene, she decides to put Clark in a position where he'll have to become Superman to save her, not realizing that Clark is a pretty ingenious guy and he figures out a way to save her without actively revealing that he's Superman. But she, she throws herself off into the river, uh, Niagara River, and... Uh, Clark has to try and save her without being Superman. No one else gives a shit about now, Lance and in the river, by the way. Like, <laughs> there are couples just walking by. There's a, there's a, there's a couple that kind of like smirk at Clark as he's hopping over the rail to go save Lois, and like nobody else is like, oh man, somebody should help this guy save his wife. Well, I don't think Richard Lester thinks about. Well, I don't think Richard Lester thinks about. I mean, Richard Donner would have. Overall. I actually like those scenes. Um, you know, you just talked about the wheels turning. And, yes. and I like the way that, you know, there's kind of this gradual revelation. Even though Lois does her little test, it fails. Yeah. She she despairs that she was wrong. And then in almost the very next scene, it's revealed that she was right. If you actually stop and think about it, you know, it's kind of like, well, you know, the, the, the throwing herself in the river moment is kind of pointless. But it's all well done enough. Yeah. that I think that we as the viewer, we go along with it. I think that stuff's all done pretty well. That was not the intention uh, in the Donner. In the original Donner script, the original idea would be that these two moments would be a little bit more separate, which okay. I think probably does work better. But in the, the original idea is very, very, very early in the film, and this scene exists. Um, there's a scene at the Daily Planet where Lois figures it out. She challenges Clark about it, which is just a great exchange. And actually, I, anybody who has not seen the Donner Cut, you don't have to. You can just go to YouTube and type uh, Superman 2 Donner Cut, Clark and Lois, Daily Planet, 
and you'll be able to see the scene where she she calls him out. I know that you're Superman. And there's just this great moment where she's kind of reading the description of Superman in the Daily Planet and Clark kind of wanders into the foreground. And she says she's re- broad shoulders and he kind of he kind of tries to shrink his shoulders a little bit like he's he's trying to, <laughs> yeah, to yeah. he's desperate. You know, it, it's the yeah. same kind of acting that you saw in the first film. And Margot Kidder is so wonderful in that scene yeah. because the moment she realizes she's looking at the paper and then she kind of looks at him with this huge like look like, oh, I'm on to something. Yeah. And then she she takes she takes the paper and she draws a hat and, and a suit on a photograph of Superman. And then she looks at him and she squints her eye down, yeah. you know, because she's trying to copy Clark onto it. And those are all Donner touches. Yeah. And I think and I think Donner, Margot Kidder benefited from her relationship with Donner. He made her have fun with the character. Yeah. He or he encouraged her to have fun with the character. And she relished, I think, responding to his direction. And when you when you watch the Lester material, well, I guess I should finish that scene. She's so certain that Clark is Superman that she's willing to bet her life on it. She throws the pen and just jumps out the window of the Daily Planet. Yeah. Uh, Clark zips down to the street and uh, uh, slows her descent with his super breath, uses his heat vision to have an awning come out, and she just kind of falls into the fruit. And when she looks up, Clark's back up there at the, you know, yeah, on the yeah, yeah. top floor of the Daily Planet. It's a really, really good scene. Uh, and the original plan was there would be that scene, and then it would only be later, Niagara Falls, that she finally is like, you know, I, I, I think that he's Superman. And there was a scene that was never shot, and it's actually probably the biggest problem with the Donner cut, that they that they only could use the screen test. Yeah. But there was a scene where Lois finally, in fact, she says, my mistake was I risked my life not yours and then she gets a gun out she shoots him he takes the glasses off and says of course if you'd been wrong clark kent would be dead and she yes. says with a blank that scene was never shot yeah. we'll never know we'll never know if it would have worked or how good it would have been this section of the lester film um i think works just fine with margot kidder's performance aside i i just i really it's, it's not that kidder is horrible in this film she's just acting she's just kind of she's just saying lines and she's not really i don't feel like that she's actually inhabiting the character in the ways that she did in the first well, one there's, there's something that you and i have talked a lot about uh richard donner over the years for those listening jason and i are pretty convinced that donner is an important figure in modern cinema for his approach to dialogue and just basically the kind of energy that he brings to dialogue scenes that feel very vibrant they feel very alive people talk over each other People are, it, it seems more like people are interacting with each other rather than just visit, than, than, than reciting lines to one another. Uh, you can see this really well in just about any Richard Donner film, uh, except Time Warp. What was that? What was his last film he did in Michael Crichton book? No, I just looked this up and I can't remember. But that was not his last film. His last, his most recent film was 16 Blocks. Okay. Well, so second to last film, I think, Time Something or Other. The film whose title I was trying to remember is Timeline. And now back to the podcast. Donner's actors, it's almost, it's almost like naturalism of some kind. I don't know what you would call it. But in Superman, the movie, everybody almost seems like they're reacting to each other. And that seems gone in a lot of the scenes in this movie. And it drags, I think it drags the energy way down in this movie. Now, as a, I as a kid, I, I loved it. And I, I think the... 
the Paris scene, the moon scene, which I want to touch on in a bit, and the superhero fight scene in the city, not at the Fortress of Solitude. <laughs> it all, I think, carried me over the threshold in a way that it doesn't cover up for all the stuff that it has to now for me. What did you think about the establishment of the Kryptonian villains in this movie? Uh, yeah, on the moon? Are you? Or just, just we're kind of building up. We build them. The, the film builds them up. The thread of them up uh, from their release to to the final fight where they where they have the the fights in 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 Metropolis and then at the Fortress of Solitude. What did you think of that? Well, I mean, I mean, the scenes that you're basically talking about in terms of building them up that would be the moon scene and then the early scenes in East Houston, Idaho. The Terrence Stamp is is a great Zog. I would say the same thing about Terrence Stamp that I said about Margot Kidd. Um, one of the things that I was able to pick out this time, I think Stamp is better in, in the Donner scenes, specifically um, his, his scenes with Luke Thor, yeah. uh, his, his scenes on the moon, his scenes at the White House, that that same uncontrollable anger, yeah. almost like Ricardo Montalban as Khan in Star Trek yeah. 2, that he's just almost obsessed with defeating Jor-El. And I think in the Lester scenes, a, a little of that is lost. But for the most part, I think that the, the the setting up of the three of them is is really a lot of fun, going from the moon scene, which is a Donner scene, by the way, because they just didn't want to rebuild the set. Yeah, yeah. And, and then going to uh, uh, East Houston, Idaho, where they meet the sheriff and his deputy. Yep, yep, yep. And, and, and I think that there's kind of that, a lot of that stranger in a strange land, yep, yep. Figuring, figuring out, you know, a, a weapon of some sort and this kind of thing. I think that stuff works. I think that that's kind of fun. For the most part, I have to agree. Though, as a comic book purist, now I, I have... I have a, there are a couple moments that really bother me in that scene. There's a certain spookiness and eeriness to the moon scene. I remember being kind of creeped out by that. Though at the same time, and this I gotta blame on Donner, I guess, since it's his scene, I was a little baffled in on this viewing. This did not bother me at all when I was 10. Yeah. Why does Ursa speak English? Is what I said to myself in this, <laughs> when I was watching this. Because she says to an astronaut that she bumps into on the moon, what manner of creature are you? And the guy says, I'm a man. And this is what I said while watching it. How the fuck can you hear each other? And why are you speaking English, Ursa? Um, so that that kind of threw me out of it. I, I can forgive it. It's the 70s, you know. Um, it's, also, it's also DC. It is. It's true. It's true. Uh, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I was kind of horrified by the idea that confronted these astronauts, which was, holy shit, there are people walking around on the moon without any... I thought the actors who had to confront the Kryptonians did a fairly good job. But I also thought the kind of casual cruelty of the Kryptonians in this instance was a little shocking. They're just curious about what will happen if they do X, Y, or Z to these beings. I thought that there were elements of that scene that were very effective and kind of spooky. As a kid, that's uh, that scene really frightened me especially when non destroys the lunar lander yes and the, and, and the guy's like oh no no and, and the you know all the equipment's kind of you know bursting in on him and of course he's not in a suit no, he's no. gonna die instantly i always found that going forward from that scene uh, they do a really good job of depicting the kind of cruelty that you're talking about yeah. now one of the things that i also want to talk about now you know i i, I talk a lot about donner deleted scenes yeah. but now i'm going to talk about some things that that were done to Richard Lester's cut uh, that were not good. For for listeners uh, who might be younger and don't remember when uh, in the early 80s, when films 
would be broadcast for the Sunday night movie, the networks would get access to a lot of deleted scenes and they would put those scenes back. And so there were a lot of scenes from Superman 2 that when I taped it off TV as a kid, there were a lot of scenes that I just thought were in the movie and they actually are not. One of the one of the character arcs for Ursa that I just think is freaking awesome and it's not in the Donner cut or the Lester cut anymore. Ursa hates men. And there's the, there's this line that Donner would have shot, but it's not in his cut and it's not in the Lester cut. When, um, when on the moon, after they've destroyed the lunar lander and, uh, you know, they, they come from there, a place called Houston. <laughs> and and, and uh, Zod says, and we will go there too, to rule, finally to rule. In the version that I taped as a kid, and this, you can find this scene on YouTube, um, Zod turns to Ursa and says, and you will have anything you want. And she stands up and she makes a fist and she says, men to kill. And and then he says, and I will rule. And they fly off. They do a great, Lester even did a great job with that character trait of Ursa's. Um, Because then they they come to East Houston and it is a Lester scene where, uh, of course, she begins taking badges from all these men because they follow another leader. She, she beats a, a guy in, in arm wrestling. I, I, I like that scene. One thing about it I don't like, and that's um, she sits down and she says, um, let's hold hands. The guy, the guy says, let me know if this tickles. And then she just like slams him through the table, which is a great little moment. And Zod rolls his eyes. Yeah, yeah. That I did not like that. I There's something, the, 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 the cruelty that you were talking about, the kind of almost dismissive, you know, these creatures or just play things, you know that that would have been that would have been done better if Zod kind of either was indifferent or or just kind of enjoyed that she was enjoying herself. Just little he, things like that, I don't he, like. He, Zod has a couple of eye rolls that I just didn't understand, and I wondered if I'm guessing that's a Lester scene. Is that a Lester I scene? Prob- probably. Um, most of the most of the eye rolls, like when uh, I think um, Non takes the siren and goes. And, and and Zod's like, oh, you know, like no. he rolls his he rolls his eye, eyes at Non a lot, yeah. and you know that's okay for Luther and Otis because yeah. that's what those characters are. But that's not these characters. These characters yeah. are scary, and half the time they are portrayed effectively yeah. as being frightening characters. And so well, those moments don't work. Well, one of the things that you notice, I didn't at the time, but I notice now, Stamp's performance, even though it's very minimal in Superman the movie, it's better than a lot of what happens in Superman 2. It's subtle. He speaks like a normal person. Lester, in several scenes, seems to be always trying to get Terrence Stamp, who is a wonderful actor with a great voice, always seems to be trying to get him to affect that that your son will kneel before he, he always seems to want him to be doing that voice yeah. um and terrence stamp is a is a is a is a is a very directable guy it seems and he tries to give lester that 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 angry voice all the time that takes away a lot of the effect of a performance you know because like you said there's a key scene later on where they uh, where uh, luther brings the trio of kryptonian bad guys to the daily planet for lois and uh terrence stamp's performance is dialed back down and he's like uh he's like well uh you promised me the you promised me superman and like luther's like well i've given you the next best thing you want superman you just hold on to that little lady right there zod says this one lives for now kill everyone else starting with this starting with him and starting with uh with Lex Luthor. I think that's very effective. Well, that's a Donner scene. Yeah, 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 no. Because, because, because Gene Hackman's in it. 
Exactly. And, and yeah. you can see that difference. Terrence Stamp isn't doing that really effective voice where you're like, what are you doing, Terrence? And, and, yeah, and no. he, he does it a lot in the film. Returning to an earlier scene where we're kind of building up their cruelty and their, their this kind of dismissive approach to humans, the scene with the country sheriffs is one of my favorite scenes in the film, in part because the sheriffs could have stumbled right out of a Quentin Tarantino movie. <laughs> yeah. You know, they have yeah. this weird conversation about a diner they're going to. We never get to this diner. Uh, well, maybe we do. Maybe it is actually the place where she does the arm wrestling. They're, they're, the older sheriff is trying to tell them about, the, the younger sheriff, about the menu. Well, it's got a diverse menu. He's like, well, I couldn't eat fish. And it's just this weird little character-driven conversation that doesn't move the plot forward. It's just a funny little human scene. And then they get confronted with the hippies in the road. <laughs> you know? All right, now. You got to go out and deal with him. You got to learn how to kick ass, son. You go get him out of the road. And, uh, and it's a great scene. And uh, the only thing that I didn't like about it was when Zod uses his heat vision on the shotgun. But he, he heats the gun up, which is okay. I can deal with that. That's something that we've seen done in the comic books. But then for reasons that I don't understand, and this will come up in the denouement of this film, uh, Zod's heat vision also telekinetically levitates the shotgun from the sheriff who had to let it go because it was red hot and brings it to Zod via telekinesis. Doesn't make any sense. And that happens a few times, especially in the climax of the movie. Uh, yes. Uh, and, and of course, I know that we will, we will get to that. I, that thought had occurred to me during that scene as well. Uh, as an aside, uh, uh, I'm, uh, listeners who are just getting to know me, uh, I'm a big James Bond fan. And uh, Clifton James, who plays the sheriff, also played the sheriff in Live and Let Die, uh, now, Louisiana sheriff. Now, here's a question I have to ask you. Is this like the Quentin Tarantino sheriff that's in all of his movies? Is this, is this character both a James Bond character and a Superman character? No, because uh, Sheriff J.W. Pepper is uh, a sheriff in the parishes of, of Louisiana. Uh. And, this, and, and we are in East... Houston, Idaho. Does it say that officially? Does it say that we're in East Houston, Idaho? Can we be sure? Uh, the, the reporter says uh, East Houston, Idaho, another middle American town that middle America had forgotten. And there's even a sign on one of the, on one of the things that says East Houston, which got me to thinking, okay, so they think this is the planet Houston and they just happened to pick a town named Houston. I mean, did they use their super hearing and like, right? And hear like, ah. Oh, this is where Houston is. I, I, so I, I didn't quite, I don't quite get the logic of that, but the going to East Houston, that was in the, the original Donner vision as well. But Donner never shot any of that. Uh, to continue about that whole sequence, there is a really terrific Lester deleted scene that, that kind of continues the Ursa story arc. In the scene, there's a little boy in the town who, who runs into the villains when, when Non is, is trying to practice his heat vision. And the little boy's father comes out with a shotgun. Zod is able to levitate him with just pointing at him, which is another problem with the, the powers that they're not supposed to have. But anyway, he's got the guy in the air and the boy says, uh, please, sir, please let my daddy down. And, and Zod does it. 
he lets him down. Yeah. Uh, so, which is also kind of interesting. Zod, when asked to do something, yeah. he'll he'll have mercy sometimes. Now, there is a really brilliant deleted scene that I grew up with because it ABC in their yeah, Sunday yeah. night movie, they would broadcast it, where uh, the little boy goes to his horse and he says, come on, so-and-so, we got to get some help. And he starts riding out of town. And just as he starts riding, Zod says, no one may leave without my permission. And then he, he hears the hoofs. I said, no one leaves. And he motions to Nan. And Nan takes the siren that he had ripped off of the, of the uh, police car. Yeah. And he hurls it like a country mile. We just see this boom in the distance in which we assume boy is dead. And, uh, and the boy's mother or grandmother or somebody comes up and says, he was only a boy. And Ursa with just this huge grin, like she's just, a cat with catnip is like, he will never become a man. Like, she's just so happy. Uh, it is a very dark, yeah, horrible, horrible scene. Yeah. It is so effective. I mean, it's probably the most effective thing Richard Lester did for the whole damn movie. Because I can see it was probably cut because it is kind of disturbing. Because when the siren is being thrown, they do close-ups on the sheriff and yeah. the deputy. And they have this look on their face like they know what's about to happen. Yeah. They can't do anything to stop it. It's horrible. But these people, these newcomers, they just don't care about anybody. The scene is so effective at, at illustrating just how scary these people are. Yet it's 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 not in the film. It's one of my favorite scenes in the movie, but it's uh, it's not it's not in the movie. Now, Nan, I think, has some great comedy beats in the movie. The scene where I mean it's a Lester scene where he takes the siren off. I thought that was kind of funny. His cruelty seems almost born of his ignorance sometimes, too, you know? I mean, and some of that stuff in there is pretty se funny. I'm guessing that's all, a lot of that is, is Donner stuff. A lot of it, not all. They, they actually, they tried to shoot some close-ups and intersperse it, which, uh, which those scenes are very well edited because you can't really tell. Yeah. But, but most of it, most of those scenes are Donner. I like a lot of the stuff that they do for them. When I was about 12, the superhero fight started to not work as well for me in the city. Now, when I was 9 or 10 or whenever it was that I was watching this all the time on HBO, and of course I saw this in the theater too, epic. It's, it's great. At around 12, I started to notice that Christopher Reeve is not really an athlete. Some of what happens, some of the action in the film doesn't work in part because Christopher Reeve and Terrence Stamp and these guys aren't really physical actors. I think Jack Halloran, who plays the, the hulking non, is picked largely for his like kind of frightening Neanderthal face, but he's not really an imposing physical figure. His, he, looks, he looks kind of, his face looks imposing and he's got like the backs of his hands are hairy. Maybe that was what that was all it took to scare people back in '80. I don't know. Yeah. So like some of the kicks and punches, just oh, that just why'd you do that, Chris? Why didn't you just let a stunt double take that, yeah. take that, uh, take that punch for you? You know. Um, but then there's other things that you could rip right out of a comic book, like uh, when Superman punches Non or kicks Non. We don't know what he does, but Non and Superman are fighting under the city, and the whole city's shaking. Um, this is mostly effective, um, but today when I was watching it, I noticed that they were, that the, I, I think it's the gaffers who do the sound, right? Somebody said, we need bowling, ball, bowling pin effects. Like there are bowling pin sound effects in this fight. And I thought, why did you guys do that? 
this was very this it would have been an effective scene without the bowling pin effects but I, I, I wonder if that's not Richard Lester being funny. You said he kind of specialized in comedy. But, but the scene that I'm thinking about is when Superman punches Non out of the, out of, from under the subways, I'm assuming, where they were fighting, and Non flies through a building. That scene could have been drawn by John Byrne in an issue of the Fantastic Four in 1980 or 81 yeah. or 82. It's a perfect comic book scene. And there are a few moments like that in the movie. But... The film is a prisoner of its effects of the time, I think. Uh, that is true. I, um, I, you know, I, I think as I said earlier, that scene was still, though, like the only, it, it benefited from being the only even attempt at, uh, at creating that kind of scene. Yeah. Um, I mean, now uh, fights like that have been done so much more effectively that the scene is not, has not aged well. No. But... Um, the standing and, grapple, the standing grapple on the on the police car between Zod and Superman. Uh, basically, it looks like two chess players who have decided they're going to have a fist fight, but but they've spent their life laboring over chess a chessboard, and they don't really know how to move their bodies through space yeah. as well. Um, that was pretty bad, but I mean, I can forgive it a lot of that those sins because a lot of it is very epic, and it's. And it's it's done as well as could be done for the time, I think. Yeah, and uh, um, I think Donner had only begun to work on that scene yeah. when they when they suspended production on Superman Two. So most of the fight of the Metropolis fight is Lester, yeah. including the the, uh, the all the gags during the uh, during the super breath uh, <sighs> moment, which is kind of sad because actually that's a very important scene. When you know these people for some reason think that they've killed Superman, you yeah. know, like like what in the history of Superman would make people think that just throwing him into a truck would kill him? But um, when they're all like, "Let's get him," which is dumb, they it's this is not going to work. Yeah. But it also that's that kind of illustrates what Jor-El said that you know inspire you you know you will inspire them by your example. Yeah, because they you know they. Suddenly they have the courage to stand together. Superman has inspired them. That's a great moment. And then they have all the stuff with the ice cream flying in the face and yeah. the, 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 the uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken lady coming out with a receipt and blowing away. The guy on the phone falls down and he continues talking. Yeah. That, that's well, all Lester stuff. Now, there is a neat gag in that that I kind of liked, and it was because it was subtle, um, and you had to be watching closely. Um, just as the fight's beginning and everybody is on the street and a car, a cab pulls into the scene and it's the cab that hit Clark at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. It's the same guy. Yeah, yeah. that's right. I yeah, thought, yeah. Okay, that was a nice little, that was a nice little callback to the beginning. So it it's still got the crunched in front, you know? Yeah. Uh, I thought, Oh, that's kind of cool. That's kind of cool. I don't know what well, he's doing and, about his radiator, but that's kind of cool. And, and, and actually even as a kid, when the, um, when the cabbie says, Man, this is gonna be good. Yeah, um, that is definitely the feeling you get at the beginning of that battle. Like, yeah. oh wow, Superman versus you know, this is what everyone's been waiting for. Yeah. You know, we spent the whole movie with the president saying, you know, and his staff, you know, where is Superman? You know, and uh, and now suddenly, here we are. You, know, this is gonna be the fight. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I actually, I still like the scene. I, yeah. I'm not. I'm with you. There, there are lots of. I mean, when I was a kid, I loved 
I loved it from start to finish. I loved oh, every yeah. moment of it. Yeah. And now there's probably just a couple moments I like. You know, I like when uh, Superman takes the mirror and 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 reflects back. Uh, That's a great Zog's. scene. Yeah. 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 Uh, and the music cue in that scene is great. Yep. That scene opens very well yeah. with uh, you know the newspapers flying up and then and then this and then the Superman theme uh, scored by Ken Thorne and Superman comes in. And, you know, does the, 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 you know, his arms across his chest and says, General, would you care to, and then, and then quick cut to everybody turning their head to look at him. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think the, the reveal that Superman is back and well, is ready and to fight, that, that's all really well done. Well, I think so too. And the reason why, for people who haven't seen the films, uh, sorry, we're going to go ahead and issue a spoiler here. Um, so if you are worried about that sort of thing, pause the podcast now. Go watch the entire movie and then get back to the podcast. <laughs> um, if not, you were warned. Uh, don't email me. I don't care. Superman, on his trip to Niagara Falls with Lois, he, she discovers that he's Superman. He takes her to the Fortress of Solitude and decides he wants to live as a human. And in the Lester cut, uh, I, I spaced out for this scene. I'm sorry, Jason. Um, why does Lara tell him he has to become a normal a mortal to, to get with Lois? Uh, she doesn't really give a reason. She okay. just says that you must live as a mortal. Yeah. Uh, and then she says, and this is an important moment, once it, but consider once it is done, there is no return. Turns out that's not going to be the case, <laughs> but... but so yeah, she, she, she lays out a pretty grave choice before him. And uh, so he decides he's going to become a human, a normal human. And he gives up his powers uh, to live with Lois. I have questions about that, but I don't know that they're important. I mean, I, always, I thought Lois was kind of into Superman and not Clark. You know, even when I was a kid, I wondered, uh, dude, is she going to be disappointed? <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, like... Well, but, but I think that in reflecting on that, I was very influenced at the time. Uh, I, I don't want to get too distracted here because people yeah. might not care. You might. But I was collecting Spider-Man at the time. Yeah. That was a big problem that the black cat had with Spider-Man, that she just could not abide Peter Parker. Yeah. And, you know, so when he would... So when he told her who he was, she was like, well, I don't want to know that. Put that mask back on. Yeah. And so maybe I was influenced by that. But I've always thought the same thing. That It's like, well, you know, you didn't consult her. You might give up your powers then she'll be like, well, now I'm not interested. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, because, I mean, that was the thing. She was she was into Superman, uh, to, into Kal-El. And... Uh, so I just, I never quite understood that. And I never understood why Clark didn't try it without going that route too. You know, like, well, we'll try it. Maybe I don't actually have to, maybe mom's wrong about that. Maybe I can, I can be me. I won't have to give up anything and I can still hang out with you. Um, yeah, and, and, he, and he didn't argue with her at all, yeah. which, which we saw in the first film in the, in the extra scene anyway, in the Donner cut, he's not afraid to debate his father. Yeah. Yeah. But boy, he just accepts everything that she says. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, it's good that they got Susanna York to do that scene. Yeah. Um, but, but it doesn't work because really you need the Jor-El well, figure. You, you need Brando in those scenes. 
Well, that's the through line, of course, too, because um, I do know this in the Donner cut. So in this movie, he gives up his powers and uh, he hangs out with Lois. He gets beat up in a bar, right? Yep. And, which, it, which the bar scene is a Donner scene. Okay. And in, and in fact, if you go back and watch it when they pull up and, uh, and Lois says, see, I told you there'd be a hot dog place somewhere. Donner is even in the theatrical cut is in that scene. Yeah. He's the dude smoking a pipe that walks by their car. Okay. Okay. Nice touch. Nice touch. But, but he, but he gets beat mercilessly. He gets beat up pretty badly, actually. I mean, he looks like, he looks pretty terrible. And it's, it's in that scene that he discovers while he and Lois have been, you know, having this blissful time together uh, that three of his, his, uh, not countrymen, I guess. Uh, I don't know what the term for planet men are. Have been kind of wreaking havoc on on planet Houston, and so he has to. He he decides. Well, I've got to go. I've got to try and I've got to try and get my powers back, Lois. There, there's an interesting subplot there, though, too. That I think that somebody could have explored. Like maybe, gosh, maybe he didn't like getting his ass kicked either. You know what I mean? Uh, well. You know, one of the things that I actually like about that scene, and I'm going to kind of explain, because he does, he, he does get beat pretty badly, but he's also such a wuss about it. Yeah. But the reason that works is because, you know, when I think about it, he's never been, he's never felt this kind of pain before. Yeah. He's never, like, he's like, it's my blood, you know. Well, you know, people who really have been in a lot of fights yeah. Okay. You know, they, they have a bloody lip, they get up and they keep fighting. Yeah. And, and he, he folds quickly. Yeah. And, but the reason that that's kind of effective is because, you know, he's like a babe in the woods. Oh, he's yeah. never had this experience before. And that's why he just, he, he doesn't just fold quickly. He, cause w when she tries to get him up, he's like, go slow, go slow. Like he is, he is a total baby about it, yeah. but that that fits. It was, a, it, was fits. it was quite effective acting too, by the way, on Christopher Reeve's part. Uh, he he does that scene very well. And Margot Kidder is good in that scene. Yeah. But again, Donner, that's him. I mean, she she, she is very she is genuinely angry uh, when the guy says, "I don't like your meat anyway," and she's ah, like, she she's she's ready to just well, she does jump on him. Yeah. And, and they have to pull her off. And that's something that you kind of feel like that if that had been a Lester scene, she wouldn't have done that. Yeah. No, I think it's an effective scene. It is the scene that helps us get Clark back to his powers. He gets his powers back, Jason. And I, for years, <laughs> we've talked about this. I want you to describe. I wish you guys could see Jason's impression of Clark getting his powers back in this scene because it's, it's pretty amazing. And it illustrates everything that's wrong with the scene. So somehow he hitches his way back to the North Pole and, and gets to the Fortress of Solitude. And he talks to Lara and he says, so when you said never, <laughs> did, you really, did you really mean never? And then Ron Howard's voice comes in and says, she did not. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's how this should have gone in this that, that, yeah I, I, <laughs> you certainly just wrote a better scene than what we actually did <laughs> that, there's no doubt about that
Um, yeah, you know, even even as a child, it is, it is so obvious to anybody that this film in this scene just it they cheat way too much. Oh, um, yeah. Because he shows up, he calls out for his father, and you know, I, I sure wish you could hear me because I need you. And there's this, you know, the, the this fortress of solitude is dead. All the crystals are kind of dark, and there, yeah. there's just no life left. Then suddenly he finds the green crystal just kind of laying there, and they, you know, the the, the 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 strings start up, and he picks it up, and he brings it up to his to his battered face, and the the the, the green glow is just all is just kind of around him. Cut to the Daily Planet. Next thing we know, he's got his powers. So apparently, it was as simple as just finding the green crystal, which yeah. is which is a, a a bit of a an easier step than. Once it is done, there is no return. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> he was looking for the crystal. Where's the De- Deus Ex Machina crystal? Where's that crystal at? I know I left it around here. Um, and he found it. Yeah. Um, so, so that seems terrible. Now, it is. the scene where he swoops back into Metropolis and you, like you said, see the newspapers, that's, that's a great little comeback scene. And I think it's important to speak about the Donner cut here because the way he gets his powers back in that is a really great callback to the first film where Brando, Brando has this really moving speech just before he sends off baby Cal to planet Houston. And he says, you know, uh, he says, uh, you probably know the lines by heart, uh, but, but it's something like uh, the son becomes the father and the father father becomes the the son. And that's going to be crucial because in the first film, Brando has like this little echo of himself that sort of lives in the Fortress of Solitude. Some bit of his essence somehow has been imparted via Kryptonian technology into this crystal that helped build the Fortress of Solitude, right? Um, but his shadow, uh, this algorithm, the Jorel algorithm, is a huge. Is, is in some way based on Jorel, and when. In the Donner cut, it's Jorel who's at the fortress and not his mother. Right. Um, and when he goes back to get his powers back, Jorel, well, you lay it out. You know the you know the Donner cut better than I do. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, um, when he well, first of all, the con the uh, the original in the Donner cut, there's actually a lot of footage and the scene where he even loses his powers. His father tries to talk him out of it. Yeah. Um. Now, I should point out, though, uh, Christopher Reeve is not really good in those scenes. Um, but, I, but that's really because those were his first scenes, period. Okay. Because uh, as I think I pointed out in the first, when we did the first film, all the Marlon Brando scenes in one and two were the first scenes shot. Yeah. So any scene between Christopher Reeve and Marlon Brando would be the very, very, very first scenes that Reeve shot. And he didn't have the feel for the character yet. I don't think. I don't think he's. At, if you look, if you watch the Donner cut, I don't think Reeve is, is really very good in those scenes. Yeah. Um, uh, he hadn't. He hadn't figured out his Clark Kent yet. He hadn't figured out any of that yet. But that's okay. These scenes are better. They're better written. Yeah. Uh, it's also Margot Kidder's first scene is when he loses his powers, and uh, that she ever shot. Although she doesn't really do much in it, but. Um, the powers are taken away. 
Uh, and then later, when um, uh, he, he does find the green crystal and he puts it into the console, and his father appears and tells him that, you know, uh, listen carefully because we'll never speak again. You, you have made a grave error. There's kind of a something that kind of makes sense. Yeah. That, that yes, Kalel can get his powers back, but what's left of Jor-El's essence must be sacrificed in yeah. order to do so. So there's actually a there's actually a price that Kalel has to pay for his for his choice. Yeah. And um, uh, and as you pointed out, there is the callback to you know the the Kryptonian prophecy is now fulfilled. The, Son becomes the father, and the father the son. Yeah. It's almost like Jor-El says, "You've made a terrible mistake," but he he's also kind of implying, "Well, this was what was supposed to happen." Yeah. And of course, Kalel is upset because he says, "Father, no," because he doesn't want to be without him. Yeah. Consistent character development. Kalel does. Kalel is not really does not deal well with losing people that he cares about. Yeah. yeah. Now he's going to lose his real father, but it's his fault. Yeah, um, uh, it, it's something that has to happen in order for him to complete his mission, and and it is his fault. There's nothing that can be done about it. Yeah, and uh, uh, and he he appears before him and he grabs his shoulder and and kind of I guess shoots the power back into him. Yeah, but that scene works so much better because there's a certain amount of sacrifice. There's a certain amount of. Uh, of Kalel having to learn accountability for the choice that he made and to understand why he can't make that choice in the future. Um, it, uh, I mean, Brando has a lot of scenes in, in the, in the, the original Superman two, he probably has almost as many lines as he had in the first film. Okay. And, and these, and these scenes were unseen for 25 years. The real importance of the Donner cut is reestablishing that, through line from the first film to the second film with Jor-El. I mean, it makes him a pivotal character in a really unique way. And uh, I mean, I, I just, I think that's so much more effective than staring at a green crystal, you know, to overcome the, the you can never take this back bit, you know? Right, right. Um, yeah. Uh, everything that happens prior to that loses a lot of its weight, you know, like in, in, the, in, the, in the theatrical cut. With the Jarrell bit in the Donner cut, and which which I think has to be a holdover from the sweeping Puzo script, the film the films then become this this thing about the past of the father kind of having a major effect on the life of the son, you know, from from the conflict with Jarrell uh, with Zod, you know, to to Jarrell's influence on on Cal's life. I mean, the past has an effect on the present, and I think that that's something that, you know. Puzo seems to have grappled with in a lot of his writing from the Godfather to Superman. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think that, that that's a really elegant element of the film where Drell's like, well, yeah, we can get you, get you back up and going, but you know, this is, this is goodbye for us, you know? And then and that also makes, that is the last of Krypton. You know, there's no more consulting with the, his father at least. Um, yeah. Um, or that relic of his father. And I think that's really effective um, and kind of moving in the kind of that movement of the story. It, it, um, it, it, and and it, as you, is essential. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's actually probably in the Puzo story, it's the most important scene in Superman 2. 
Oh, I think and so. It's not, and it's not in the theatrical <laughs> film. No. no. Um, and so, so, that, so that gets us back to Metropolis, and we have the fight. In the fight, Superman realizes that even if he wins, I, th- I think this is why he leaves, and maybe you have more insight into this. He leaves the fight in Metropolis, I think, because even if he wins, a lot of Metropolis is going to get destroyed. A lot of yeah. some people are getting hurt. You know, they, Ursa and Nan pick up a bus and throw it at him. The bus is full of people, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, and Zod even basically figures it out. I found his weakness. He actually cares about these people. And I like that. I like that it never occurred to him. Yeah. <laughs> like, he, he had to figure it out. Exactly. It's, he's like, oh, well, that's weird. <laughs> yeah. This isn't my weakness. <laughs> um, but so Clark leaves, and they, they follow him back to the Fortress of Solitude. As a kid, I thought this was kind of cool. As a comic book fan, I, I find that the fight at uh, the Fortress of Solitude is terrible. It's... The acting isn't bad. None, none of what happens in the Fortress of Solitude fight makes any sense. There's, there's a scene where they play a hide and seek or something where they're all like, basically, I don't know if listeners, or if every listener will be familiar with the character of Nightcrawler from the X-Men, but his ability, he has the ability to like teleport so he can pop from one place to another without walking there. He just, uh, in the comic books, there's always this little word that says bamf. And there's a little puff of smoke and he bounces all over the place. And it's effective for that character. Superman has never in the history of the comic book ever been able to teleport or to make copies of himself. And that happens in this uh, scene. And he says something really stupid to Lois. We used to play this when I was a kid back home. I was never very good at it. Who the fuck did you play this with, Clark? (laughs) (laughs) You know, none of your friends could teleport in Smallville, Clark. Um, and then one of his clones is not just like some kind of trick of light. It's actually like some kind of ice mannequin or something that non attacks and it topples. And uh, I mean, if you're a Superman fan or a, com- a, fan, a fan of the comic book and a, and a fan of decent adaptations, this scene is annoying, I think. Well, uh, it's also... Um... Uh, very, uh, there's an annoying edit when you know about the production. Okay, they show up. Uh, we've neglected to talk about Luthor, but they have Luthor on, or Non has Luthor on his, no, not Non. I think it's Ursa has Luthor on, on her back. Yeah. And she drops him off when they fly into the Fortress of Solitude and they have a body double that, that shakes his fist from the, it, we only see the body double from behind yeah. and the body double shakes their fist at Ursa and we hear this horrible Gene Hackman in, impersonation. Hey, ever heard of parachutes? And then the fight that you just described, there's a few moments where Luthor is trying to kind of make his way over to everybody. Yeah. And that's how they explain that Luthor is not in the scenes, the battle scenes that you're talking about. Yeah. And so then finally Luthor shows up as like, Hi everybody! You know, like like I'm back. Yeah. And uh, so that's a very sloppy kind of way of trying to write around Gene Hackman's uh, absence from those those scenes. In the Donner cut, there is no initial fight. Oh, yeah. Like it, it cuts right to the drama. Okay. Which is good enough. 
because that's actually why we're here. You know, we're here for the Zod, Jarrell, Kalel, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and that makes a little bit of sense too, because A, nothing you're going to do in, in the Fortress of Solitude is going to top what's happened in Metropolis from an action right. scene point of view. Um, right. There's just not as much to have happen. I mean, like, once you see one ice crystal break, you know, I mean, it doesn't get more exciting than that the second time, right? Right, so, right. Um, so it, it didn't make sense for that. And Clark brought them to the Fortress of Solitude because he had a plan. What I like about the Donner Cut is that it just gets to Clark's plan because he's, he's giving up, yeah. quote unquote. That's the get, I mean, he's tricking them, right? And I can give Zod what he wants. Or I'll tease him with giving him what he wants, which is, Neo before me, <laughs> son of Jor-El. And, uh, and that's, what, that's what Zod wants. But so, so the Lester fight is terrible for comic book purists. But I forgot to mention, so the teleporting scenes I could be okay with, but the, the scene that like offends me the most, I think, in this fight is when Nan is running at Superman and Superman reaches up, faithful listeners, and grabs the top of his Superman symbol and unpeels what I have always called ever since uh, Superman saran wrap. And he throws it at Non and it wraps itself around Non and it causes him to tumble down a few feet and then it just disappears. What a useless, what a useless attack that was. I mean, I guess it got Superman out of a little trouble, but, but that's not something None of none of those things are ever explained, and I think, I think had somebody just spent a little bit of time saying, "Oh, I brought them back to Fort, the Fortress of Solitude because I have some relics of of Krypton that I can attack them with. I have like you know different tricks here that I can do." That would have been a nice little thing for a fan, but I I that scene just annoys me. It didn't, of course, when I was nine. I loved it. Well, but you know, it, it kind of it kind of makes you wonder: is that a scene that they just cooked up so that Lester could have some more footage? Yeah, yeah. To get the fifty-one forty-nine percent. I I'm in I'm in total agreement there. When you watch the Donner cut, when you get right to the meat and potatoes of the uh, uh, of the of as you said, uh, Clark's plan yeah. of how to fool them, and of course, all that was Donner footage yeah. because obviously Gene Hackman's there. But like even the, um, you know, the, the, now finally where he, he has Kal-El get down on his knees and and, uh, Lois is crying, like, like all that, that was all Donner stuff. He, you know, that was, that was completed. And then (laughs) just the fact that he uses Luthor, because the, the thing that's so funny about Luthor, Luthor is so into real estate that despite ample evidence that this is not going to work out as soon as he as soon as his cards are played, yeah. he conti- he continues to stick with Zod. Yeah. Uh, even though Zod, I think on three different occasions says, "We're done with this one. You you kill him." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, no, uh, yeah. You know, Luther definitely, for as brilliant a guy as he claims to be, he, <laughs> he makes a lot of blunders in this film. So that's taking us from the beginning to the end of the film, pretty much. Uh, Zod tries to get Superman to kneel, but Superman's tricked them and taken their powers. Now, is the scene where he shows Zod that Zod's not the guy in control? Is that Donner stuff too? Is everything at that part 
Donner stuff when he picks up Zod and yeah, that's, that's, okay. that's Donner. Um, yeah, because I think that's all really effective. Um, I was watching this today on Amazon Prime. I rented it, uh, and there was a bit of trivia that Jack Halloran, he's the actor who plays Non, and uh, oh, I can't remember the lady who plays Ursa's name. Sarah Douglas. Sarah Douglas. Um, they claim that they did not get along with Christopher Reeves at all. Have you read? Has, have you come across that at all? No, I haven't. Um, I've never heard uh, anything about Christopher Reeve other than "My God, he's a saint." Right, yeah, no, as, yeah. Uh, I now I know Jack O'Halloran hated Richard Lester. Okay, I I saw not many people on that set seemed to like him very much. Margot Kidder didn't like him. Uh, yeah, I I, I never I, I read a few different places that. Different actors did not like Lester. They they were well, and they all loved Donner. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I, I know that O'Halloran and Sarah Douglas have both been very and Margot Kidder before she passed, right? So she's yeah, she's um, yeah. That they all saw the Donner cut and preferred it. Like they were very vocal about saying that yeah, yeah this is actually this is better. Yeah. Well, I mean, for, from everything I've ever seen, I've watched I've watched quite a few. Uh, behind the scenes things about Donner. I'm a huge Richard Donner fan. When you watch him in these behind the scenes thing, you see that he's a very much an actor's director. He's yes. always he's always encouraging people to try new things, to to improvise a bit, to kind of play with their characters. And and I think he gets really for lack of a better term, I know sometimes people don't like this term, he gets really organic performances out of people that don't that don't that never feel to me like scripts it feels I, like it yeah. feels like people talking and I, I really appreciate that which is something you see a lot more in all of the daily planet scenes in the donner film in the 78 superman the movie and a lot of the daily planet scenes in this one with the exception of the ones that focus on clark um i don't think perry white is as effective in this movie yeah um uh he seems, everything seems a little more subdued. The energy isn't up. And I think, I wonder if that isn't because Donner's always saying, well, do something fresh with it, you know, kind of play with it. I, I agree with what you're saying. And in fact, watching, because, you know, in preparation for this, I watched the, the, the theatrical cut and then I watched the Donner cut. And that's actually the thing that really stuck out to me in watching both of them yeah. is just the, how, how the performances felt different. And, and that Donner... Uh, what Donner is a better director of actors than Richard Lester. And I don't think Richard Lester is a bad director. No. I don't think he was the right guy for Superman movie. But, um, but certainly um, Lester's scenes just feel kind of flat. Yep. And, and Donner's scenes just uh, are almost like a tease of what the movie could have been. Yeah. Well, I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, I was just thinking about like, how many times do you think Richard Lester asked Margot Kidder to say, hydrogen bomb, hydrogen bomb where? Because that scene, she's not very effective in it uh, at all. I, I could see why she would be upset with that. Now, strangely, for all our complaints, the film did, was a smashing success. Uh, yeah, and, you know, but I think that, I don't know, I mean, I think the action scenes were just more at the time they were more cutting edge than they seem now. And yeah. that just really kind of carried it through. But like even, you know, going back to the scene when 
Clark tells Lois that he's Superman. And she says, I'm sorry. Like, she's just so, like the traditional fem- uh, uh, protagonist of a, a, of a romantic comedy. Yeah. Like, the Lois character is just kind of gone. Yeah. And she's just and she's just a woman having a conversation about being in love. Like she, I think that line. Well, maybe you didn't want to with your mind, but oh, you yeah. wanted to with your heart. Yeah. See, I I don't think Donner's Lois would have uttered that line. No, no. Um, um, that scene though did make me did remind me of why I liked Reeves so much in the thing because well, he's good in it. Um, and just I I was just noticing the different ways that he holds himself to sell Clark. I, and I thought that was pretty neat, but yeah, Lois Lois felt pretty flat, and I was, which is disappointing because she's so good in, in, uh, in the first one. In the first one, uh, and, and I would encourage you to go back and just watch uh, and watch the Donner cut, or just just go to YouTube, just yeah. watch some scenes, just watch some some Donner scenes from Superman two, and you will feel a difference in the performance that she gave. There is only one more thing that I think anybody who uh, who's a critic of this film or a lover of this film would want us to touch on. Okay. And that, it, and that is the memory kiss. Oh, Jesus. The memory wipe, yeah. I think Superman must have kissed me. I forgot about it. <laughs> um, uh, I guess it has to be discussed. Tell us what happened. Why do we have to dis- What What happened? So Lois knows Superman is Clark Kent and Clark Kent is Superman. And that both and, of them are Kal El, and and the and the day has been saved, and Luther's gone back to prison, and uh, then so the next day at the Daily Planet, Superman is Clark Kent again, and he's doing his shtick, and then he comes in, and Lois is falling apart yeah. because she she uh, she's not dealing well with the fact that she can't be with him but he's still going to be around him every day. Yep. And they have a romantic moment in which he uses his powers during their long goodbye kiss yep. where he wipes from her mind any memory of anything that happened. And she immediately reverts back to treating him like she always did. Now, yeah. this, this is something that has uh, made people be very critical. One of the things that people have criticized about the theatrical cut over the years. Yeah. Now, is this a Donner scene or a... No, no. Uh, and the reason good. that is, um, Donner, Donner originally, the original ending of Superman 2 is Superman uh, turns the, the world back the other way and uh, the criminals go back into the Phantom Zone. Okay. And Lois and everybody else forgets about what happened. Now... Donner and Mankiewicz both said that because they used that in the first film, that they were always going to write something new. Yeah. But they never got around to it. Gotcha. So if you if you watch the Donner cut, because they did shoot it, they shot the turning the world back around. They actually shot that scene, um, and there's an alternate scene where Lois is getting ready to type, and you know Clark interacts with her, and she doesn't remember anything. Uh, and so that's all in the Donner cut, um, but but the scene with the kiss—that's a Lester scene. That was okay. uh, that was one of the rewrites that the Newmans did. Well, it's not a funny scene, and uh, I think it defies a lot of physics laws. I don't—I could be wrong. I mean, I've had some good kisses in my life. Uh, none of them made me forget what happened the previous week. I mean, unless I was also concussed by some other thing that happened that, that right. day. 
But but what are the complaints about this scene other than it's just stupid? Um, uh, well, um, that this is not a power that Superman has. Well, that's certainly the case, yeah. Now, that being said... That he maybe, maybe when he was close up to her and they didn't show it, he, like, used his heat vision and, like, lobotomized her a little <laughs> bit, really close. Maybe that's what well, happened. Well, yeah, I actually... This might be a big the, the the main difference between the two of us because actually, although it's taken a while, I actually do like the scene. Okay. Uh, and the reason that I like it, there there are specific reasons that I like it. It's not the idea of the kiss. Yeah. But everything around it is done well. Like, so so the scene starts off. Clark comes in and he talks to some some gal out. You know, before he goes into Lois's office. Like, hi 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 Louise. Yeah. He walks in, and then suddenly, even though he's still Clark Kent, he reverts to being the serious, like, yeah. how are you doing, this kind of thing. And uh, and then, you know, Lois is just a wreck. Then they have the kiss, and he takes the glasses off, and there's a close-up, and they do the kiss. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then she kind of is swooning, I suppose would be the word, and, and the magic is working. And he puts the glasses back on, Right when somebody walks in and he immediately reverts to Jay Lois, are you all right? <laughs> and and he, pour, he pours her some water and that, that gives the water to his coworker. And he's like, uh, 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 breathe, breathe. Uh, and, yeah. and Lois says, Oh, I am breathing. Good, 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 good for you. Like he, well, he, well, he immediately is, goes back yeah. to it. Yeah. Well, Reeves is very good at that kind of that acting. And that's, that's fine. I'm, I struggle a bit with the morality of that moment. And it's that bothers funny. me a little because you could say you could have written a line in the script that he maybe brought some uh, while he was kissing her. He, he set off a Kryptonian thing behind her. You know what I mean? He could, they could have done something, you know, uh, or they could have written something in that would have explained that away in a way that you'd be like, fine, whatever. I, I can deal with that. But the morality of it is something that has that bothers me and it's bothered me more and more you know since then yeah. uh, since i first started noticing that i had problems with the movie you know yeah. um now the first the first objection i had to it was oh that's not a superman power he's not he's not kissing people you know uh right, just right. Forgetful, as you know but <clears throat> as i've gotten older i mean the, the bigger issue is not that power so much as is as it is the morality of wiping somebody's mind somebody who's <clears throat> supposed to be your friend she wasn't going to write a story about him there was no reason to do that well it, it uh, makes sense to me more uh, well no that's right now um now as far as your moral argument uh, i think especially today the the film does have that problem because basically i i have heard the argument and i think it's a very compelling one that it's a it's it's like a rape no that, that basically you know, they have this relationship and he wipes it from her mind, but not from his. He yeah. still has you know, all this knowledge. Um, however, I do think his motivation is, and I do think this is the one time in the film that Margot Kidder sells yeah. that she really is suffering. Yeah. You know, she says, you know, that I, you know, that, that, that I've been up all night with the line, you know, do you know how vile it is to hear the first birds of the morning when you've been up all night crying? Yeah. So I think the scene does a very good job of explaining that she's just, she's not dealing with it well. Yeah. Um, however, you know, the moral part of it is that they made this decision together. Yeah. And um, she has the right to 
you know, experience uh, her own choices. Yeah. The, the, no. good and, the good and the bad aspects of it. If she had said, I just wish there was a way I could forget about this. And he said, well, I have, I have a way. Yeah. Yeah. Then she could have, she could have made the choice. I don't think Lois Lane in this cut or the Donner cut would have opted for that. I think that you're right. I, I, think, I think Lois is a look at it as it is kind of person. And if they can't be together, that's fine. But I don't think, I think that there would be a certain amount of, even, even though they don't have the physical intimacy anymore, I think that they would have been even better friends and closer sharing yeah. that secret. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that for the purposes of the moral argument, without her saying, I wish I could forget about this. And I think that would have been, a, I think that would have been a more effective scene, whatever her choice was. But I think it might've been more interesting to say, I wish there was a way. And he would have said, well, there is. And she would have had a dilemma and then said yes or no. That could have been really powerful. As it stands, I, I do have a bit of a problem with it. I can, morally, I can get by with the, the kiss, whatever, you know, I don't understand Kryptonian technology. Maybe he wore <laughs> Kryptonian lip balm that I didn't see, you know, that, that had this ability, but, but that's the thing that bothers me the most about it. Kevin Smith actually touches on this a bit in one of his uh, speaking engagements, but he was talking about the Superman returns thing. I've seen it. Yeah. yeah. Where, where not only does Superman wipe her mind of, their wonderful weekend at Niagara and the knowledge of, of uh, him being Superman. But he also seems to have wiped her mind of the fact that he is the father of her child, you know? <laughs> yeah. Now, and the danger of this too, is that he could say, Oh, well, you know, this was all consensual, but she doesn't know. Right. You know, uh, I yeah, mean, that's, no. a, that's, a, that's a big problem. That the film has that problem. Yeah. Uh, that scene has that problem. Uh, because actually, um, you could actually, uh, I think if, if Zack Snyder was making that story arc, um, he might have allowed Superman to go through with it and made that part of what is con uh, conflicting about Superman. Because, yeah. you know, one of the, uh, I, I think one of the character, uh, well, certainly it's Bruce Wayne's opinion in the, in the Snyder yeah, verse yeah. That, that Superman just um, doesn't really have a human, uh, I mean, He's not evil, no. but he does not operate by the same moral code that we do either. No. But that's not what's true in these films. So the scene does have that problem. Yeah. Um, I do think that it's, I, I, I think I like the way it was executed better than you do. Yeah, yeah, I think so, I think so. Um, anything else? I don't want to step on your toes. You, 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 well, saved me, you saved me from moving on before we got to the kiss. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, that's that's pretty much it. He does get revenge on the bully. That's a pretty good scene. That is a good uh, scene. That is a good scene. And that's, uh, a, and, that, and that's a Donner scene. But then the film ends. And now for the verdict. Uh, I would recommend the film uh, with the caveat that uh, of all the things that were stated, that the film does have a lot of problems. There are problems with some of the acting and the direction and the editing. But I think overall the film survives because of the beats of Puzo's original script. And therefore, when I actually, I think about the film, I think of a lot of the problems that it has. But in the end, 
I think that the that the the adventure action ro romance beats even even when they're not uh, performed well are still good enough that they would probably attract most viewers. I actually would still recommend the film even with its problems. I I think I would too. Uh, I I I like to say Superman two is a great film that never got made, but we have two kind of shadows yeah. of what it could have been. And I think it's really a lot of fun to, to kind of check those out and, uh, and explore them and see what could have been. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, guys, that's it for episode six of Max and Jason Watch a Movie. We'll see you next week when we cover Superman's three and four, probably as a single episode. Uh, we don't think it's going to take too long for that one. Um, stay tuned later in the week. We will drop an outtakes and sidebar discussion about Man of Steel uh, as a little mini episode. Um, anyway, that's all the news that's fit to print or podcast, as it were. Uh, bye bye. And I'm like, what happened to Margot? Jorel and Zod have similar goals half the time. They are portrayed effectively yeah. as being frightening characters. But then I kept asking myself, or is that from Octopus? I like the verdict. <laughs>